0: How great really is the Lord Jesus? The response of the writer to the Hebrews would be turn your eyes upon Jesus. That's what it's all about, isn't it? Um, we we're looking again at home Bible studies in Hebrews, uh, coming from the Claudin Christian Assembly. I'm your host Andrew, and we're going to look at study number two Greater Than the Angels. The section we'll cover today is the rest of chapter one, and then hopefully the next podcast will be chapter two. Originally I'd intended to do chapter one and chapter two in this in the home bible study, however. Uh things did not allow that to be the case and uh understandably too there's so many many wonderful truths in the end of chapter one. We decided to just focus in on chapter one, verse number four, down to chapter one, verse number fourteen. So we'll look at that section in our uh, podcast today, and I trust it will be a blessing to you as we think of it together. The handout for this home Bible study is available um, both in Dropbox, uh, and particularly if you don't already know at uh, uh, Claude Christian Assembly, where the where the podcast is. If you go into that, um, some of the podcast providers have the F attached. However, others, uh, you might need to um, email me at williamson one at yahoo.co.uk. Anyway, that's um, if you want the handout. Coming back now to our study. Study number two, Greater Than the Angels. The subject of angels has fascinated people for generations. um, In cultures across the world. But particularly in many ways in the Jewish culture. Um, They've been given the law, um, it tells us in in Acts 7 and 53, they've been given the law as delivered by angels. Um, They heard the story of Daniel and and the the visions of Daniel that spoke of angels doing battle over the nations and particularly protecting the nation uh, of Israel. So they had the greatest awe and re- um, reverence for angels. You turn to somewhere like Deuteronomy 33 verse 2 where it says that when, when the Lord gave his law there were 10,000 holy ones watching on as it were. And so so that idea of the angels being extremely great and extremely powerful and, and, and to be almost revered um, is really attached to the Jewish way of thinking. Um, it was developed perhaps even more by the Jews at this time in the first century um, and and they had a whole series of additional uh, beliefs about angels that were not found in the Old Testament text and so uh, it's as the writer of the Hebrews is dealing with how great Jesus really is um, having dealt with the fact he 's greater than the prophets and his the revelation that comes through him is so much Superior, God has spoken in his son, as we thought about last uh, time that we had a Bible study. Now he's going to speak about how much greater the Lord Jesus is than the angelic beings. So uh, let's look at the sort of breakdown of how he'll deal with this um, in a little bit more detail. In chapter 1 verse 4 to 13 or 14, Uh, The writer uh, affirms the superiority of the Son attested by seven Old Testament scriptures. So he's going to lift seven uh, statements from the Old Testament that is specifically related to uh, the Lord Jesus Christ and his superiority over angelic beings. His superiority of rank and character and nature is in view. He is superior because he is God. Uh, in chapter 2, from verse number 5 to 18, we'll see the other side of that. Um, there's a little section in parentheses at the cha- top of chapter 2, chapter 2, 1 to 4. We're not going to deal with that until we get on to the parenthetic passages, where he, the warning passages, where he'll, he'll, he'll warn those that he's writing to of the dangers of going away from the truth. Um, but in chapter 2, verse 5 to 18, he's going to emphasize the superiority of the Lord Jesus and say it's related to his destiny and purpose. Okay, so so having dealt with it in relation to his godhood, that he is God, and that that these seven statements of the old testament affirm his deity and affirm his equality with God and affirm his sonship and affirm his, that, that the angels will one day worship him, for example, and affirm that he is he is Lord and, and not while the angels might change, he is always on the throne. He is God forever. While wow. all that's true in chapter 1, in chapter 2 he's going to lift the humanity of the Lord Jesus. You see, the Lord Jesus is truly God and, and fairly man as well. And and this is m- the most wonderful thing about this person. Um, Theologically speaking, people speak about the hypostatic union of uh, the Lord Jesus. What they're really saying is that he is truly God and truly man. He is fully God and fully man. He's not a, a kind of part man and a part God. No, that's, he, he fully possesses both natures completely, okay? And so, so, the really the building blocks of Hebrews, the, the, the great temple, the great edifice structure of Hebrews, which is going to bring us our hearts out in worship towards God um, and, and towards the Lord Jesus, it is based on these two pillars at the door, as it were. The twin truths that stand at the head of the author's message are like the two pillars in Solomon's temple. Um, they are his deity in chapter one and his humanity in chapter two. Now we're going to find out that they aren't watertight compartments because while it is true um, we have deity in chapter one and humanity in chapter two. Actually we have humanity in chapter one and deity in chapter two as well, but but in the main that is uh, that is the way it's uh, brought out. And so, in chapter 1, we have the deity of Christ emphasised, chapter 2, the humanity of Christ. Chapter 1 is emphasising his position at God's right hand, and how much superior the angels he is there. And that that is his by right, because of his nature, and his name, and his sonship, and the worship that is his due, and all these kind of things. And actually, chapter 2 is going to emphasise not the position that he has now, but the purpose in taking to himself humanity. His purpose in coming and coming down. And, and the fact that the age to come, the great messianic age uh, that is looming ahead for for believers. And particularly the Jews would have thought of this, the kingdom age. It's going to be, be put under the administration, not of angels. These mighty powerful beings and and so on and so forth. It's going to be put under the administration of man. Uh, and so that's really what it's going to deal with in chapter He says, well, actually, God's going to put it under man. And more than that, that mankind is headed up in the person of the Lord Jesus. But we see Jesus made for a little time, lower than the angels, with a view to the suffering of death. And now he's crowned with glory and honour and so on and so forth. So he's going to really emphasise in the second chapter all these reasons why the one who is God actually became man why he took humanity to himself uh, and added it to himself as it were why he did that is really going to be emphasised in chapter 2 now I'm not going to say too much more about chapter 2 because we didn't get to chapter 2 we just got to chapter 1 so our focus is going to be on chapter 1 and we'll look at that together for a little while and just go down the text and try and uh, be a blessing as we do so Hebrews chapter 1, verse 4 to 14. Having become so much better than the angels, as he has been heard and subtained a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire? But to the sun he says, Your throne, O God, is for ever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness, therefore God your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. And you Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak you will fold them up, and they will be changed, but you're the same, and your name, your years shall not fail. But to which of the angels has he ever said, "Sit at my right hand, till I make your enemies your footstool"? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those? Who will inherit salvation, having become so much better than the angels, so this introduces this comparator at the very beginning of this section you'll see it runs right down this this paragraph or two um, he starts to compare and contrast and show how much superior the the Lord Jesus is to the angels you'll say see that um, again just as you read down the verses. Um, he says clearly uh, in in verse number uh, five, four. To which of the angels did he ever say, "You're my son"? You you'll notice that he's saying this is something. Did he did God ever say this to any of his angels? And then go on a little bit further. He says. But when he again brings a firstborn into the world, he says, Let all the angels of God worship him. So again, contrast with the angels. And of the angels he says, and gives a something he's going to say about angels, and then but to the Son he says. So again a comparison and a contrast being drawn. And you go way down to the end of the, the passage after a lot of more quotations, and this is what he'll say in verse number um thirteen. But what to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand, and so on and so forth. So we began by asking ourselves a question, how did the Lord Jesus and when did the Lord Jesus become so much better than the angels? Because that's the very first statement that we have in verse number four. And when we discussed it and thought about it, it I think became quite clear that that we have to think a wee bit broader than just the verse that we're looking at. We've got to go back to the last time marker in verse number three. It tells us there that, After he had purged our sins or made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty and high. So this is the Lord Jesus. Yes, truly God, um, truly the son of God, divine. But it's speaking about him after he had purged our sin, made purification for sin, coming to the cross and going back to the right hand of God in heaven sitting down at the right hand of the Majesty and High. And there's something absolutely unique about this going back there because he didn't go back the way he had been before. You see, before the Lord Jesus came into this world, he was truly and fully God, yes, but he took to himself true humanity when he entered the the womb of of the Virgin Mary and, and, and when he was conceived... When the Holy Ghost came upon Mary, uh, and that which is conceived in her was of the Holy Spirit, the the Word of God tells us. Uh, And so we have a completely uh, new element to the person of the Lord Jesus. In that sense, if we can speak like that reverently, what we have is him taking humanity back to the throne of God. And you see, it was understood by the Jews, and it is spoken of is this way in scripture that angels were greater in power and might than, than humans in the normal sphere of things so this is why we read um, that having sat down at the right hand of the majesty and high verse number four he has become so much better or so much superior to the angels and then it says as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. He's inherited a more excellent name than they. Now we we then ask the question: not only when did he become so much superior to angels, or better than angels? I.e., his his rank. He's 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 ranked above them. He's he's above them, and and all these kinds of ways. When did he uh, inherit this this na- more excellent name? The name that is so much superior uh, and so much greater. Than the angels. And I suggest that that there's a sense in which. In coming into humanity. What we find is that. The Holy Ghost shall come upon you. The power of the Most High shall overshadow you. Therefore also the Holy Thing that shall be born of you. Shall be called. Notice that. Be called the Son of God. Why did it say that? It didn't say that. That would become the son of God that the Lord Jesus would become the son of God he was eternally the son we've just thought about that in the verse of two previous in fact it tells us that it was through his son that he made the worlds so he was always in that relationship of son that the dignity and all that's truly involved in that but now we have this public declaration if you like of him as the son of god and this is particularly true in a messianic way if we want to take the next few verses into account here as well because in the old testament the son of god um for instance in psalm 2 links to the one who is the messiah who is the chosen king who is the who's going to be the one who will rule from the rivers to the end of the earth kiss the sun and so on and so forth you look at that psalm in your own time so This is extremely important we understand. He is so vastly superior to the angels because of the vast superiority of the name that he bears. And that name is, I have no doubt, in the context, the name of Son. So, to which of the angels did he ever say? So we'll begin this kind of um, interrogative way of, of asking questions that the writer is using. Uh, and, and he uses quotations from the Old Testament scriptures uh, again and again. He's taking them mainly from the Psalms, but they're from other places too. Um, and so here we have the first one You are my son today, I have begotten you. Now, this is from Psalm 2, as I mentioned. You are my son. Now, you might be saying to yourself, Well, uh, is it not true that the angels were spoken of as sons of God? And again, you would be right in a certain extent. There's one or two references in the Old Testament that speaks of them as the sons of God, uh, Job chapter 1, and one or two other references. For instance, it tells us on one occasion that, that the sons of God shouted for joy at, at the physical creation and so on and so forth. But the idea there behind sons is a more collective idea of the ones that are created by God uh, in, in, in in that sense. So, so they're... Sons of God creatorially, okay? Um, However, what we have here is something very distinct. This is asking the question, to which of the angels did God ever say? Pointing out specifically one of them. He says, you are my son, okay? Uh, And so, so what we have here is something distinct. This is a distinct proclamation and setting forth of this one as the son of God. And of course, that didn't happen to any angels. It didn't matter whether it was the Archangel Michael or 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 that, that favored angel uh Gabriel or whatever angel you want to choose. None of them was pointed out, and God didn't say, This is my son. He didn't bring him forth into public view, as it were, as his son. No, no, that was reserved for the Lord Jesus Christ. And in his coming into humanity, the Lord Jesus. Um, was brought forth, he was brought forth. I have begotten you in fact, that expression I have begotten you is used in the old testament uh, about you we know what not what a day may beget may bring forth, and so there's that idea of course it's often used of birth it's used of birth in relation to uh, um you know a, a a woman would would bring forth a son um, bring them into public view in that very obvious sense of the word and, and, and here here we have. Here we have this beautiful expression used of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I link it to his incarnation. Some people link it to his resurrection so forth, so on and so forth. And there are reasons why people do that. But we don't have time to stay there today. Enough to say this. What we're going to look at here is the one who is the messianic king. And what linked him to the messianic kingly line was his being born into that line. This is proved for us uh, in Matthew chapter 1. And by the way, in his birth, it tells us that he would be begotten. Okay, so I take it quite simply that you're my son. Today I have begotten you refers to the bringing forth of the Lord Jesus Christ in the public view at his birth. And as the son of God, he shall be called, Luke chapter 2, the son of God. God and so that's the way I understand this and of course that never happened to any angel this was absolutely unique and it was uh, properly for the Lord Jesus Christ himself and then again he quotes another passage 2nd Samuel chapter 7 I will be to him for a father and he shall be to me for a son now the Hebrew writer is actually at this point quoting from a passage that is dealing with the son of David, the coming Messiah, if you like. Um, he speaks about David's whole line, in fact, and you'll see that if you look at the context, that, that that there's a sense in which the Davidic king is in view in a more general way. But um, as was understood by the Jews at this time, and has been understood, there was to be one who would embody being the Davidic king, and, and to him... Uh, this reference obviously suits. I will be to him for a father; he shall be to me for a son. I think it, that's a practical experience of his life down here. He had the smile of his father's approval. You remember at the Jordan uh, River, as 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 we think of his baptism, uh, as the Spirit descends to anoint the Lord Jesus. You remember, this is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. And so we have. I, as it were, the next stage of the life of the Lord Jesus. We have his 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 bringing into the world, his li- life through the world. Uh, but then he goes on to the next qu- statement in, in, in verse number six. But when again, he brings his firstborn into the world. Now, interesting, of course, the, the word firstborn is used in Messiah as well. Um, uh, he, I shall make him my firstborn higher than the kings of the earth. So this is, again, uh, a messianic thought behind it. When again he brings his firstborn into the world. Now this can be read either, again, i.e. we're giving you another quotation, or, but when he again brings the firstborn into the world, which I take it fits better and some scholars will say makes more sense of the way the word order is here. Let all the angels of God worship him. Now when did that happen or when will that happen? I take it still to be future. It's when he's again brought into the world. He was brought into the world the first time. You're my son. Today I've begotten you. I will be to him a father. He shall be to me a son. But then there's coming a future day when he says again, let all God's angels worship my son. And and he's going to be brought into the inhabited world and, and, and every knee is going to bow to him. And things in heaven and things on earth and things under the earth. And every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It tells us that in Philippians chapter 2. And of course, that really fits with what we have here as well. Let all the angels of God worship him. Isn't that tremendous? Just to stop and think about that for a little minute. That every angel is one day going to be told, stop! This is the time. He's coming forth. He's coming into his inhabited world and his foot will stand in the Mount of Olives. The very place where they, uh, they denied him and they rejected him. They put him outside the city wall of Jerusalem. And, and as it were in sight of that scene of scorn and shame, uh, the Lord Jesus is going to come forth. And he's going to come forth in triumphant glory. And he's going to set up his kingdom. And God is going to say stop to the whole angelic realm. And he's going to say, worship my son. And of course, this again sets him completely apart from the rest of, our I shouldn't say the rest of, but from the angels themselves. So what we've noticed so far is that his superiority has been linked to airship, if you like, inheritance. It's been linked to sonship and it's been linked to worship. And now he's going to tell us that it's also linked to what you might call sovereignty or kingship. And, well, he's going to impact this in far more detail. He's looking at the very character, the nature of the Son at this point. We're going to see that in the next little comparative study from verse number 7 down. Uh, It'll run right down most of the rest of this passage. Notice at this point what he does. And of the angels he says... Now he's speaking about the angels, so so God's going to tell us something about angels at this point, and this is what it says Who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire? Now, uh, when we were dealing with this in the Bible study, we were just trying to unpack that a little bit. What does it tell us about angels? For instance, it tells us that they're created, who makes his angels spirit. Who is the who? Well, it's God, perhaps it's the Son of God, really, actually in the focus, but anyway. Who makes his angels? They're created beings. They're spirits or winds and and flames of fire. They're they're changeable, you might say. Um, They're adaptable to the circumstances. He makes his angels, spirits, and his ministers a flame of fire. This is taken from Psalm 104. Spirits, flames of fire, the adaptability, the changeability. The the, the the almost the transient nature of of how God uses his angels and his ministers someone has pointed out uh, or we did discuss anyway in in the in the Bible study we discussed the fact that we have two statements that are pretty much parallel statements. Of course, in the Psalms, we have this Hebrew parallelism that is quite common. Uh, this is how the the poetry was done uh, in these ancient times. It wasn't like you round the ends of the words or anything like that. That's what we do in English, but that wasn't really what you had in the uh, in the Hebrew uh, poetry. You, you 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 layered level after level with slight tweaks in it just to give a slightly different sense. Uh, and of of what was happening. So so his angels and his ministers, in a sense, they could well be speaking about the same people, if you like, to use the word people more generally here. The same personages. Uh, his angels that's the thought of his messengers. Uh, that's the word, angel. Um, his ministers, his servants. So so these are those who, who run to do his bidding. These are those who do his the messages of God. So they're before the throne, as it were, doing these things for God. They're changeable, they're adaptable. They're servants. They're even transient, we might say. Um, they, they are created beings. Now he's going to contrast all those things in verse number 8. But... You'll see the butt there, but to the Son he says, "Your throne, O God, is forever and ever." Now he's pointing forward to a coming day and this quotation is from Psalm five he's pointing forward to a coming day when the Lord Jesus will be enthroned and but what he's it's it's to the Son God is speaking here, your throne." O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is a scepter of your kingdom. You've loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. Now, there's tremendous lot to unpack in these two verses. Um, Perhaps at this point, we must make the contrast. The difference between the servants of the verse before and the sovereign of verse number eight. The servants, they're angels and ministers. The sovereign, your throne, the the created being of of the verse before, who makes his angels, your throne. The God of of the next verse, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The changeable nature of these angels and ministers, he makes them, he changes them for their, adapted for their purposes, but of the Son, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So there's this thought of the continuity, the one who is on the throne, not the ministers in front of the throne. But as I was saying at the start, um, we have a tremendous uh, take in these verses that makes perfect sense if you understand the deity and the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. At the start, clearly... But to the Son, he says, your throne, O God. God is speaking to his Son and addresses him as God. That's the deity of Christ emphasised. But then you'll go down to the next verse. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. What's that speaking of? It's speaking about the life of Christ, how he he exemplified the the loving of what was right and the hating of what was wrong. Uh, And then it says, therefore, God, your God. So here we have the one who was addressed the verse before by God as God showing his deity, is now actually addressed as one who has a God, who has the God as his God. And so here we have the deity and the humanity of the Lord Jesus, the perfect, sinless humanity. He loved righteousness and hated lawlessness, is is linked forever to his absolute deity. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And you'll notice even that is emphasised as we finish the verse, as the quotation goes, he has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. And so, this idea of, of fellows, those who are companions of the king, now, whether that's the other kings in the Davidic line, some people think, whether it is uh, the, the coming day of glory when, when he has round him those who have accepted him, trusted him, uh, and so on and so forth, you can try and unpack that for yourself. He further emphasizes the unchangingness of God in in the next and uh, of the Lord uh, in the next quotation in verse number ten. And you Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth. Of course, you go back to verse number um, three, two and three. It really emphasizes this in another angle from another angle. But here it's speaking uh, directly from Psalm one hundred and two, and it's being related by the by the writer clearly to the messiah to the son of god to the lord jesus christ you lord in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands they will perish but you remain they will all wax old like a garment like a cloak you will fold them up they will not be changed they will be changed but you're the same and your years shall not fail so here we have another thing um, developing this idea of the cha- the changeableness of the angels contrasting with the with the continued sovereignty and and the eternal sameness and um, unchangeableness, incorruptibility and immutability of the sun, all emphasised here, um, the the very universe itself is going to be folded up. And and he is the same and his years will not feel. Now, if you take this line that I suggested, uh, how do you understand it? We have actually gone pretty much from the beginning of his uh, earthly pathway, uh, you're my son to death, I begotten you, Uh, through his life, uh, I will be to him a father, uh, to the coming again of Christ into this world, when all the angels of God worship him, and he sets up his kingdom, your throne of God is forever and ever. Uh, Now we're moving on into the eternal state. Uh, He's going to fold everything up. Uh, Your years, uh, you're the same, and your years will not fail. And and having continued that, Completed that quotation. He then finally uh, quotes from the classic Psalm 110. But to which of the angels has he ever said? Sit at my right hand. Of course, no angel would ever have been given that place. This is a place that's reserved for the the Messiah's son. The one who came. The one who is eternally God's son. But the one who came into time, space and history uh, as the Messiah. and, And he is going back to God now. And he is invited to take his seat at God's right hand on the throne of God. A man on the throne of God. Let's stop and just pause and marvel at how great and how superior uh, this one is over the angels. And so we go back to verse number uh, four just for a second. What he has been saying back in verse number four. He's become so much superior to the angels. And that is in line with the the, the superiority of his name. It's so much greater than the angels and he has just proved it to us in this beautiful opening chapter now maybe it was worth saying one more thing about verse number 13 and it's this uh, as as god has called him to sit at his right hand he sits in verse number uh three because of a completed work having made purification for sins he takes his seat that's an active voice and um, he takes his seat uh, because it's his by divine right Whereas you come to the end of the chapter, he takes his seat by divine invitation. God tells him to take a seat. And God says that every enemy that he has will eventually be made his footstool. God has made a vow, a promise, as it were, to his son. And so we have this beautiful panorama of truth with regard to the son brought out to us in this passage. One more thing. Um, Just as I said before. You'll notice that we have not only the deity, but the humanity of the Lord Jesus underlying this passage. Ever since uh, the, the, the Bethlehem, the Lord Jesus Christ is forever united to humanity. And so we have a man, truly God, yes, but we have a man. At God's right hand, on the throne of God, there sits um, a, a one who is going to bring uh, mankind out of the mire of his sin and out of the, the awfulness of his bondage. We'll see that in chapter 2. And at this point, he's just emphasising how great this man really is, the, the the son of God. Now, finally, verse number 14. Now, he introduces a theme or two in verse number 14. He introduces salvation and, and, and so on and so forth. And, and we'll be able to discuss that in the next Bible study. And we'll maybe keep some of our powder dry for that. But it's worth saying this, that there's a link between verse number 14 and, and chapter 2 and verse number 5. Uh, You will notice that I mentioned that the first four verses is really a parenthesis. It's helpful to note that because he's going to speak about the world to come of which we speak. Um, And he's going to say that world to come of which we speak has not been put by God in subjection to angels. In other words, angels aren't the rulers in the coming age. They're not in the messianic age, the millennial age, we might say, if we're speaking about it. You'll remember we're speaking to a Jewish audience. And so that's the way they would be thinking. Chapter 2 is going to emphasise that he is the author or the captain of our salvation. So all that's involved in chapter 2 really brings out that that the Lord Jesus has stooped, he's come into humanity, he has made himself for a little time lower than the angels and he has done it with a purpose, he has taken hold of the seed of Abraham. He has done it to draw humanity to its full potential, uh, to what God has for humanity in a coming age. And, And all that's unpacked in this idea of, of salvation. So just the way there's a past of salvation when you trusted the Lord. And there's a presence of salvation as the Lord is keeping you and keeping you preserved and throughout your life uh, down here. And, and eventually a future fulfilment of that salvation. The emphasis here lies, I take it, on the future fulfillment of it. Those who will inherit salvation. So here we have these ministering spirits, these 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 <clears throat> angels that are involved in some lesser way in 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 helping out to minister to those who will one day inherit this wonderful salvation. So they're so much inferior in that sense. They have a role to play in this salvation, and only in this sense that they. They, they're involved in some of the, the servant, the ministering functions. But what a contrast with the son. He is the author of the salvation. He's the captain of the salvation. He's the file leader. He, he uses these different, well, the same word, but can be used in different ways. And so he's going to say how much superior he is, even in this regard as well. So anyway, I'll leave it there. Um, I know it was a kind of rush job through Hebrews chapter one, but I trust it's a blessing to someone. And um, just stop and reflect take each of these seven statements and just maybe take one per day I, I suggest over the next week or so and just revel in the wonder of how great this person is the lord jesus christ god's son our savior and our lord may the lord bless this this quick uh bible study this quick podcast I trust it will be a blessing to you i'm signing off for now thank you again